Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, we welcome Payson McKelvin. Payson, as you may know, is a gravel racer, a mountain bike racer, a podcaster, a Red Bull athlete, and an all-around adventurer. I've wanted to have Payson on the podcast for quite some time. I'm an avid listener of his podcast, but moreover, I'm a fan, and that probably comes through in this episode. I'm a fan of Payson as he's every bit as approachable in real life as he comes across in social media. He not only races at the front end of of the gravel races on the calendar, but even more importantly, I feel like he's out there in the community and he's always after some great adventures. You can see him crisscrossing the country of Iceland. You can see him setting FKTs. You can see him getting brutalized on the Colorado Trail in one of his first bikepacking expeditions. He's just a hell of a lot of fun and a hell of a great guy. So I look forward to you listening to this episode of the Gravel Ride podcast. Before we jump in, we need to thank this week's sponsor, the Hammerhead Crew 2 computer. The Hammerhead Crew 2 is actually the computer that Payson uses, so you may hear him talk about it both on his podcast and in social media. His experiences are quite similar to mine. The Crew 2 is a revolutionary GPS device that offers the rider a whole bunch of customizability that really translates to giving you the information you need when you need it, in the format that you need it. I've mentioned before, a few of the things that I really love about the Karoo 2 are, one, the climber feature. I've become addicted to the climber feature. It's quite amazing. Every time you approach a climb, the Karoo 2 is gonna display in graphical format, in color-coded format, the gradient, the length to the top, and the amount of elevation you need to gain. I find that really useful in terms of pacing, And it's fascinating. I've always been fascinated by grade. So seeing that grade in front of me on the computer, I've started to really understand where my sweet spot is. I know that I'm I'm quite good in the six to say 12% range, but north of 12%, I start to suffer. So it's quite interesting looking at that. The second thing I wanted to highlight is Hammerhead's bi-weekly software updates with new feature releases that are unmatched by the competition. So unlike other head units, your Crew 2 continues to evolve and improve, with each ride being better than the last. You can seamlessly import routes from Strava, Commute, and more, route and reroute and create pin drop routing on the fly, all available with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. The Crew 2's touchscreen display is intuitive, responsive, and in full color, so your navigation experience is more like a smartphone than a GPS. You'll see your data more clearly than ever, while also withstanding rugged conditions since it's water and scratch resistant. Tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Crew 2 as their trusted riding companion, including this week's guest, Payson McKelvin, and another fan favorite, Amanda Nauman. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom color kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Crew 2. Simply visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code THEGRAVELRIDE at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. 
So don't forget that promo code, the gravel ride. After you put a custom color kit and premium water bottle in your cart, the code will be applied. With that business out of the way, let's dive right into my interview with Payson McKelvin. Payson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to finally get you on. I feel like I've been wanting to get you on since back in 2019 and the Mid-South Gravel Race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, was, that wasn't my first foray into gravel, but one of the first. Yeah, and sure. I think it was, it, it was one of those moments that it was, you know, there was very much a different style between you and Pete when racing in those adverse conditions, all the mud and whatnot. And how you were oh, 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, 2020. Yeah. So yeah, babying yeah. the bike and yeah. Pete being a little bit rougher on the bike and you know, both you guys smashing the pedals. And I it's funny because I'd heard you interviewed after the fact about that race, and I'll refer to the listener back to some coverage there. But you were being you were very conscious of what mud could have done to your bike. And that mm-hmm. was clear in the way you were you were taking care of it. And I had that thought while I was watching the coverage, like that's smart dipping it in the water, clearing it out, just being conscious of what it's going to do the drivetrain. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, boy, that was, I mean, gravel racing is always a dynamic thing. And I feel like to varying degrees, just a mission of damage control, even on dry days. But yeah, that was such a dynamic day. I mean, early on, even, I, I mean, I thought my race was over 20 miles in when literally right as, I think it was Pete, it might have been Summerhill, actually. Danny, Danny Summerhill was just absolutely on a mission early in that race too, but someone putting in an attack around mile 20, kind of first narrow section. And literally at the same moment, I got a big stick jammed in my rear wheel and had to stop and pull it out. And uh, yeah, because that selection was made and I ended up in like the third or fourth group that wasn't moving as quickly right off the bat. I think I had like a minute and a half deficit to, to the lead group of, Pete and Colin and you know all the usual suspects and was pretty convinced that the day was over at that point but also over the years I've learned that gravel racing or not kind of regardless of the style bike racing when you don't give up good things tend to happen no matter how dire it, (laughs) it seems and I was fortunate enough to ride back into the first chase group with my teammate at the time Dennis Van Wenden who spent many years on the world tour with Rabobank and Belkin and Israel Startup Nation, a bunch of good teams. And during that day, there wasn't a whole lot of drafting that was going on because the the surface was so slow and there was so much mud and you were just kind of weaving around picking your line. But it was really pivotal to have him to, to kind of join forces with him there because he really quieted me down mentally. And he was like, hey, man, if you want to try to get back into this race, you need to do it gradually like don't panic chase you know a minute gap we could probably bring back in 25 30 minutes but if you do it over the course of an hour or more you know you can stay below threshold and that'll really pay dividends late so long story short i was really grateful to have his kind of sage wisdom and sure enough we got back into the group right before the aid station there at mile 50 ish and uh, i was surprised we got back but i think the you know, Pete and Colin and everybody else was even more surprised to see us come out of the mud from behind. But yeah, right. that was a memorable that was a memorable day, and and in a weird way, I think getting getting having that setback so early on almost kind of calibrated my mind for the the survival contest that it was going to be all day. So that when the shit really hit the fan there in the last thirty miles, I was kind of already mentally prepared to roll with the punches. 
Yeah, I think there's some good points there. I'll, you know, it's always interesting to me talking to elite level athletes and, you know, with most of my listeners, presumably being like myself, mid-pack racers, those same rules apply, right? Mm. Shit always breaks down for everybody. And you can have a really bad moment in one of these long gravel events and come back as long as you do the right things, right? If you're, if you haven't eaten enough, you haven't drinking, drank enough, you just got to get back on top of it and the day will come around and more likely than not, the field in front of you is going to experience the same problems, just asynchronously to yourself. For sure. And I know we're going to get into the Grand Prix, but I think that's one of the things that makes the Grand Prix so fascinating, especially when combined with the pretty unusual point structure. I think it's just going to be so topsy-turvy and tumultuous. And, you know, obviously we saw two, two of the, the favorites, you know, most people's picks for the overall in Keegan and Mo already take the lead, but I would be shocked if they maintained that lead, you know, all the way through the next five rounds, just because of the nature of gravel racing. Weirdly, I think the mountain bike events will be the least, least selective in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Well, let's take a step back pace. And I know, you know, I feel like I've gotten to know you through the course of your podcast, the adventure stash, but for our listeners, why don't you just talk about how you got into the sport of cycling and we'll, we'll get to how you arrived at the gravel side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So where'd you grow up? Where, when did you start riding? What was the first kind of race experience you had? And how did you sort of develop the vision that you could be a professional athlete? Yeah. So I grew up in a very small town, about 20 minutes outside of Austin, Texas, the rural Texas hill country. Um, fortunate enough to, to grow up on sort of like a little, I don't know, hippie farm, hippie ranch with, with my parents, you know, we had chickens and dogs and 18 acres, couldn't see any houses from our house, which is something I, you know, in hindsight, really appreciate pretty cool environment to grow up in. And I played pretty traditional sports growing up, basketball, ran track and field, all that sort of thing. But bike riding and racing was always a little bit in the back of my mind because my dad did it some off and on while I was growing up. And then also Lance was winning all the tours during that time and actually lived just 15 minutes away from us. So he was a little bit of a hometown hero and, and all that was always front of mind. Freshman year of high school, I want to say, I kind of had this recurring knee injury from playing basketball and that nudged me towards cycling a bit more. And I just started riding more and getting more interested in, in mountain biking in general. And there was this really cool mountain bike film, one of the early kind of shredded mountain bike documentaries called Rome that was playing in a bike shop. And I just totally was transfixed one day. And that summer just kind of went all in on building trails on the property and mountain biking and trying to learn more skills and through a little bit of a little bit of coaxing from my dad I decided to to line up for a mountain bike race a local Texas mountain bike race when I was 14 and got absolutely smoked but for whatever reason just it it hooked me and that fall after getting absolutely destroyed by all the local Texas kiddos I just really dedicated myself to training and and developing skills and came back that following spring as a 15 year old. And I don't think I lost a race in Texas that year. And it sort of solidified this idea of putting work in and, and getting a significant reward. And 
I'm not really sure why that never clicked with other sports. I was, you know, I guess had had a little bit of talent for basketball, maybe definitely talent for track and field, but I never dedicated myself to them from a work ethic standpoint. But for whatever reason, I was really motivated to do that for cycling. And um, yeah, just became a, a fan of the sport, student of the sport, followed it like crazy, got to know the pros, the U.S. pros, and saw that Durango was really kind of the hotbed for domestic mountain bikers. And one thing led to the other. And now here I am still chasing the dream. <laughs> and did you, did you end up going to college in Durango? Is that what I recall? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So went to Fort Lewis college. That was also a big selling point. I ended up going to Europe with the national team as a 17 year old with USA cycling. And the, uh, one of the USA cycling coaches there for that trip was Matt Shriver, who happened to be one of the coaches at Fort Lewis college at the time also. And he sort of, you know, did a little bit of recruiting work with <laughs> with those of us there that that camp and and a few of us actually ended up going to Fort Lewis but yeah boy Durango's incredible I I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to to come here and then call it home for sure yeah the the riding and mentorship in that community is huge it is it is it, it's 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 pretty incredible that the town is so small and so isolated in the scheme of things like it's it's pretty hard to get here it's it's a long drive from anywhere and it's a kind of pain in the ass flight from everywhere also we found that out on the way home from sea otter when it took a day extra but yeah i'm a small town hard to get to and yet it's just this ridiculous hotbed of of talent you know talent that's developed here but then also talent that moves here and one other thing i really appreciate is, is it isn't super like pro dominated like there's a very healthy grassroots contingent of cyclists here that frankly do not care what's happening in pro bike racing whatsoever and that's actually quite refreshing when you spend a lot of your time at big race weekends and you're getting asked 25 times a day what tire pressure you're running it's really nice to come back to durango and and you know just go shred some single track with someone that's wearing jorts and grab a beer afterward <laughs> <laughs> i bet when you when you graduated from college and decided to go pro was there a particular style of mountain bike racing that you were you had in your head this is what I want to pursue man this is where it gets pretty complicated this is where it's very hard to make the the story short but I'll be as succinct as I can so moving to Durango I had my sights very firmly set on World Cup XCO in the Olympics I'd had some success as a junior and U23 making the national team each year and doing some World Cups and going to, you know, selection for Pan Am games and all that sort of thing, podiums at junior nationals, all that sort of thing. But what I wasn't familiar with yet, obviously, as most teenagers are not, is the, the economics of professional cycling, especially on the, the dirt side. On the roadside, it's pretty pretty cut and dried. There's almost a league, obviously, and there's a there's a fairly well worn pipeline to the highest ranks of the sport. But in mountain biking, there just really isn't that. USA Cycling tries, but it's there's such a high barrier of entry for a kid that doesn't live in Europe to go over to Europe, learn that style of racing in a foreign land and you know it's it's very cost prohibitive the riding style is completely different it's not a mainstream sport so their talent pools inevitably are just so much more vast than ours because 
you know, that there are more kids that are just interested in, in being high level cyclists where most of our, you know, kiddos are interested in being NBA players or NFL players. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a well-known story that it's very hard to break through at that level. And then there's the other component, which I don't think is talked about as much, which is just you, you start with the handicaps of inexperience, obviously fitness, if you're a younger rider and then just start position. And I mean, it's, it, it is so, it's such a wild setup where you have to be so much stronger to break through and start earning results where your start position improves that just everything is stacked against you. So I had a few, what I'd call kind of flash in the pan results enough to not give up on it, but not enough to really make it feel like it was uh, a foregone conclusion. So I felt very fortunate to be in college and, and getting exposed to other styles of cycling as collegiate cycling frequently you know, allows for, but going into senior year, I was kind of looking down the barrel of having to make some tough decisions. Cause I was making money racing professionally, but it was like serious poverty line sort of situation. And, you know, finishing seventh or eighth at, at pro XC Nats as a, as a 23 year old is, is cool, but it's not going to give you an illustrious career. And so kind of late, late, late summer, early fall, I just started kind of looking outside the bounds of this very narrow lane of focus that most folks my age were focused on, which was Exio mountain biking in the Olympics. And the the other thing kind of to note is that in, one thing that strikes me frequently is that in mountain biking, there are just fewer jobs of value in a way, if that makes sense. Like on the roadside, if you're yeah. 23rd strongest on a world tour team, you can still have a very fruitful position that is valued I mean, if there's 400 some people in the world tour Peloton, I don't know what the number is exactly, but if you're 350th strongest, you're still a very valued member. If you line up at a world cup and there's 200 guys on the start line and you finish even 80th, like what's the value of that? There's, yeah, it's anonymity. (laughs) You're, (laughs) you're, you're the, you're the backdrop for the folks that are in the top 10 anyway, sort of digressing, but point being, I I started looking around the sport and I'd I'd had some offers and opportunities to try racing on the road, but culturally it just didn't quite jive for me. And then, you know, I started kind of looking at some of the folks that have, that had created their own paths, folks like Rebecca Rush, Lil Wilcox hadn't really rose, risen to prominence yet, but those sorts of people. And I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe I'll just go try something a little bit more adventure oriented just for fun. Like, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to have the opportunity to, to dedicate as much time to cycling in the future as I am now. So maybe I'll, I'll go on an adventure. Um, and sort of around the same time, weirdly, I got a, a message from this race promoter Italian guy that was putting on a race in Mongolia called the Mongolia bike challenge. And I still don't exactly know how that came about or, or, or why he reached out to me, but sure, you know, I'll, I'll come try your race. And he said, if, if I could get myself over there, he'd cover all of my expenses when I was there. And that said, you know, a flight to Mongolia, I think was like 25, $2,600, something like that. And I had maybe $3,500 to my name as a senior in college. Yeah. 
And I was like, well, you know, I, I just have this sneaking suspicion that this this style of racing might be more my cup of tea. Obviously, the Xeos, I'm falling out of love with that. So I drained my bank accounts, flew over there, had an amazing experience. That's a whole other story. Yeah, um, it's such an amazing country. I had the good fortune of going there. And I had mm. previously raced a couple of the, the trans races, so trans trans Rockies up in Canada and had friends who had done the the ones that were over in Europe. And I caught wind of that Mongolia one after visiting Mongolia on a hiking trip. And I was like, that must have been epic. It was. It was super epic. And, you know, it was, I think it was eight days, seven, eight days. The stages were, there's one TT day that was like an hour, hour 15, but most of the days were five to four to five and a half hours. Um, and there were some good racers there. You know, Corey Wallace was there. He'd He'd won, I think, Canadian Marathon Nats the year before, and he'd won the Mongolia Bike Challenge the year before. There was also this Italian World Cup guy there who I'd never been able to be close to at World Cup events. And all of a sudden found myself going shoulder to shoulder with these guys and just feeling way more capable as an athlete and ended up winning that series. Outside Magazine did a little interview and like photo epic on the win. And that's, I found out later, kind of what put me on Red Bull's radar. But that was the that was the thing that really set the hook for me where I, I thought, you know what, this was way more fun. I got to see an amazing part of the world. The media cared way more about it, like way more media interest than I'd ever received. And I was just way better suited to it. I had no experience, had barely been doing five-hour training, never done a five-hour training ride, and yet was able to kind of rise to the occasion and do five-hour race days and, and back it up day after day. So... After that point, I started kind of dedicating a little bit more time to to that style and then consequently won pro marathon Nats the following year. And that's that was those two things were kind of the inflection point, I would say. So around 2017. And was that had you joined the Orange Seal team at that point? So I had been on the the rebranded Show Air team for anyone that remembers the you know Scott Tedros Show Air teams. It was called Ride Biker that year, and it was sort of like a collection of privateers. It seems like there are some equivalents these days. Like I think the the shoot, what's it called? Easton Overland, I want to say. Yep. They run yep. something similar to that, and then uh, as far as I can tell, that new jukebox program seems to have a bit of a similar setup so it was kind of set up that way so i was able to start to pull together some of my own sponsors and then once i started to get that media interest the the outside interview was kind of the biggest thing i was able to parlay that into better support orange seal came on board as one of my bigger sponsors but i hadn't the the team didn't exist yet and then when i won marathon nats that's kind of when orange seal and and trek were like hey what if we made a team like rather than this being a privateer thing what if we kind of took some ownership and let you just race and we set up more of a team so that's how that worked and you mentioned getting on red bull's radar when did you end up becoming a red bull athlete let's see i guess 2018 early 2018 does that is that right 2018 i can't remember i think i think 2018 timeline sounds right yeah and did it mm. did it change your perspective of yourself as an athlete as you got exposed to the Red Bull family and other Red Bull athletes? Oh yeah, enormously. I mean, it, it changed everything. And it's funny because when when I first started communicating with them, at first it was just like this childhood euphoria of oh my god, this is the most 
sought after prized sponsorship in, in adventure sports, outdoor sports. Like this is, I can't believe they're interested, but this is incredible. And you start getting so fixated on, on the potential of it. Um, but for anyone that's familiar with their process, they'll know that it's not fast. So basically they were doing background on me for a year and then for two more years, we communicated and kind of dated almost, you could say, <laughs> decided to figure out how much commitment, mutual commitment there wanted to be. Obviously, I was very interested in commitment, but, and then came the phase where it looked like it was going to happen. And all of a sudden you start feeling the pressure and you start questioning, am I worthy? What is this? What does this mean? What's going to be asked of me? How do I need to rise to the occasion? And I'd say even after I signed for a solid year, that was kind of my mindset. Like, oh man, I need to, I need to not screw this up. I need to prove that I'm worthy. I need to do innovative things. But one thing that's interesting is that they, Red Bull never puts any pressure on you. And they really drive home the fact that they want to partner with you because of who you already are and who you can become. The, the potential that they think they see. And they they really like to pe bring people on board before they've reached um, their, their prime, their best. They want to help you be a part of that growth process. So once I was able to gradually shift my mindset and realize that this was more of an opportunity and less of an obligation, that's where I think mentally and emotionally I was kind of able to free up, free myself up a little bit, race with more race, with a, a sense of opportunity and joy, and then also start to kind of tap into that creative aspect that I've really started to lean into over the last few years that I've come to realize is like very necessary just for my, my happiness and, and sense of fulfillment. And I think that's really where their most significant interest came from. And it was also just great timing. You know, they wanted someone in this endurance mass participation sort of arena that's also why they brought uh colin in around a similar time and so yeah like like any success timing was was a massive part of the opportunity as well yeah i feel like in some way and correct me if i'm wrong your relationship with red bull for a few years prior to the pandemic left you very well suited to weather the pandemic and the lack of racing. You, yeah. know, you had a, a wider view of yourself as an athlete and the things you could do. Yeah. And, you know, I, over the years, I've questioned kind of this, all of these extracurriculars that, that I'm interested in, whether it be the podcast or some of the films we do or some of the, you know, crazy routes I like to try to tackle question you know how much does that detract from from more traditional racing because like riding across iceland three weeks before the australia's off-road isn't you know stellar prep <laughs> but <laughs> by by the same token you know i've really tried to zoom out over the last handful of years and think about how will i look back on this time when i'm 45 50 55 whatever and really it kind of goes back to mongolia you know take deciding to take that red pill rather than blue pill spend most of the money i had to go on a crazy adventure halfway around the world by myself as a 23 year old with with no experience you know i'll i'll never forget that experience the people i met over in mongolia and ultimately i think going through life experiencing as much of the world both interpersonally and just 
travel wise as you can is a, is a good way to do it. And I've had many mentors over the years who have raced at the highest level kind of persistently remind me that the, what they remember are the things between the actual races and to make sure that, you know, if you go to Alpstadt, Germany for the world cup, do everything you can to make sure you don't only see the inside of your hotel room and the three kilometer race course. So that's kind of why I've more and more ambitiously gravitated towards some of these more adventure oriented things. And ultimately from a professional standpoint, getting back to your point, it really does, you know, the way I look at it is sort of like a diversified portfolio. There are athletes that only hold one kind of stock, you know, maybe, maybe your stock is awesome. Maybe you have a bunch of shares of Apple, but you know, what happens if for whatever reason, Apple tanks. So similarly to the stock market, you know, you want to have a diversified portfolio when we're operating in this space that doesn't have a league, it doesn't have a bunch of structure and there is a lot of room for, for creativity. So it's a, it's a personal need, but also it's worked out professionally as well. Yeah. I think as a fan of the sport, when you're out there doing those adventures and obviously you do a lot of filming around these adventures, we just feel closer to you as an athlete. So when you line up at some gravel race, like we're rooting for you because we've seen you struggle like any one of us might struggle on an adventure. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's good to hear. It makes sense. You know, anytime, you know, I, I think about, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a massive mainstream sports fan. So I'm always comparing our little cycling sport to these, these mainstream sports. And it's interesting to look at something like, say, basketball versus football, the NFL versus the NBA. And in the NFL, there's massive athlete turnover because of injuries. And also everyone's wearing loads of protective equipment, you know, helmets, pads, all that sort of thing. So you very rarely do you actually see the athletes. They're just these incredible people ripping around on a field, hitting each other. With basketball, you see all the riders, interesting hairstyles, you, riders, basketball players, interesting hairstyles, you know, the way they react to like a bad call, the way they're talking to each other on the bench. Usually they're, they feel more comfortable, you know, giving more flamboyant post-game interviews. And so it feels like the collectively, like the fan base for individual players in the NBA is so much more engaged than in the NFL. Like fans are, with the exception of folks like maybe Tom Brady or like people that have been around forever, folks of the NFL are, are fans of the game fans of teams and on the NBA side of things, frequently they're fans of the individuals because they, they feel like they know the individuals. And so I think the same yeah. can kind of be said for cycling. And, and interestingly, I think that this is a whole other conversation, but I think it's one of the reasons we're seeing such amazing professional opportunities for folks outside the world tour. Now, obviously the most money bar none is still in the world tour, but there's so much less freedom for personal expression for frankly, like having personality. I mean, look at guys yeah. like Lachlan that are like redefining the sport and all they had to do was get out of the world tour and do what they wanted to do. And I think that's really interesting. And I feel fortunate to be in a part of the sport where that's more celebrated for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So chronologically on the journey, we're back at 2018. You've won your second XC marathon title. Had you started to dabble in gravel in 2018? Uh, yeah, I think that was 2018. I did Unbound. Yeah, I guess that would have been 2018. And that was 100% gravel. 
due to sponsors requesting it, I was I was not interested, and I had a whole mess of mechanicals and and actually didn't didn't finish. And I think that might be the last that might be the most recent race I haven't finished. Maybe beside well, that, that that's not true. Mid South just happened, but yeah, I was I didn't get it in 2018. I was like, man, this is carnage. People are flatting everywhere. Why are we out here for so long? This is so boring. It does seem like a rite of passage to get abused by your first unbound professional experience. Dude, for sure. And Amanda Nauman loves to make fun of me about this because like I really, not not publicly, but I was fairly outspoken to some people about how I just didn't understand gravel after that experience. And then I ended up going to Mid-South in 2019, two weeks before the White Rim fastest known time. And I was planning to use it as like a, a hard training effort for the white rim fastest no time and i ended up winning that mid-south race and then i was like oh gravel is sweet everyone cares so much about this win getting loads of interviews like a massive bump in social media followership like wait maybe there is something to this gravel and amanda's always like yeah the only reason you fell in love with gravel is because you were fortunate enough to win a race early on which you know might be kind of true but Long story short, it was not love at first sight with gravel, but that's obviously since changed. And you were, are you still kind of in the sort of, I guess, 2020 season, were you still doing XC marathon style racing in conjunction with gravel? 2020 yeah. is probably a bad example because that was the pandemic year, but in that, in that period, were you doing both still? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is I still see myself primarily as a mountain biker and and there are people who you know question you know how I define myself as a racer at this point but I don't even really feel the need to define what style racer you are because I'm just interested in in the biggest races in in the country the and really you know at this point it's kind of becoming the biggest mass participation non-UCI events in the world and it's a, I look at it as a spectrum, you know, if, if you kind of go down the list of how do you define these races on one end of the spectrum, you've got something like, you know, BWR San Diego, which in my mind is just kind of like a funky, sketchy road race. I don't know that you're allowed to call it a gravel race if everyone is on road bikes with 28s and 30s, narrower tires than, than people use at Roubaix. But, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like, I don't know, an Epic Rides event or, you know, even, even like the Leadville 100 that really blurs the lines. Like, is that you could for sure race the Leadville 100 on a drop bar gravel bike as, as Corey Wallace did last year. And you've got everything in between. So, you, you know, you've got grinderos where some people are on mountain bikes, some people are on gravel bikes. You've got the grasshoppers, same. So I look at, look at it as much more of a spectrum. And I think we're just in this incredible golden age of, grassroots grassroots is such a misnomer but just like mass participation non-spectator primary races and i'm just i'm here for all of it it's all awesome yeah yeah it's super exciting and i think the event organizers have just a ton of freedom of how they want to design the race courses you know if i think about the difference between the la gravilla event at sea otter this past weekend which was probably 75 percent single track it was the basically the 40k MTB course, mm -hmm. super single track heavy, required a pretty hefty skill set. I know a lot of quote unquote gravel riders were 
scratching their heads after that one, thinking they were definitely underbiked. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have something like BWR, as you mentioned, or even SBT gravel doesn't require a lot of technical skill set to be competitive in those races. So I, I find it fascinating. And I think that even goes down to where you ride and where you live. Like my gravel here in Marin County, as the listener well knows, is quite a bit different than Midwest gravel. Not better, not worse. You know, it just depends on what's your cup of tea. For sure. And I mean, here in Durango, our best road rides are gravel road rides. And we've been riding road bikes on them for ages. When I first moved here, you know, every, so we have a, a Tuesday Night Worlds group ride which for what it's worth is still the hardest group ride I've ever done anywhere in the country by a lot. But frequently, you know, every third week or so, the the route that we'll do is majority dirt. And everyone's on road bikes. And up until a couple of years ago, everyone was on 26s or 28s. And, you know, they're fairly smooth gravel roads. But pretty much, if you ask anyone locally, our best road rides are half dirt roads. So when this whole gravel movement started, I know I was one of many that was we were kind of scratching our heads a little bit about, well, isn't, isn't this just bike riding? <laughs> but I understand the industry's need to kind of define and brand things, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting as we were talking about your career and this sort of transition, not transition, but just this melding of your love of XC and this new love of gravel, lo and behold, in 2022 lifetime announces <laughs> the grand prix half yeah. mountain bike races, half gravel races. How excited were you around that announcement? Whew, very excited. Yeah, I, I, I'd had some conversations with Lifetime in the year or so prior, kind of generally talking about structure and and what events might make the most sense and 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 all that sort of thing. But it was a little bit ambiguous about whether it was going to happen and to what degree and what it would all look like. So when the the announcement came out, I. I was sort of primed for it, but I was also surprised by quite a few things. And that certainly, you know, increased the excitement too, as I read through the the proposed rules and the point structure and the events they decided on and all that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, it, it feels just like an enormous opportunity. And I think it feels like an enormous opportunity personally because of the events, obviously, but I think it's an enormous opportunity for, for, North American cycling as a whole, because there are so many aspects of the series that are completely different than any other series we've seen. I mean, in the United States, with the exception of, you know, the, the heyday of mountain biking in the eighties and nineties, we haven't seen cycling massively successful really as a, as a spectator sport or as a televised sport, because there's always been this goal of making it uh, a spectator sport. But I don't think in the United States it's really ever going to be a spectator sport. The the key in my mind is that it's a participation sport in this country. And that's what these huge grassroots mass participation events have really tapped in and made them so successful. And so when you combine that with, you know, a year-long points chase, maybe all of a sudden that is the secret sauce for making it more spectator friendly, even if it's more of this kind of modern age of spectating where it's very online based. There's lots of social media coverage. There's, you know, maybe a live stream. There's, you know, really cool, like drive to survive TV series type things coming out of it. I mean, actually drive to survive is a great example. Like look what drive to survive has done for F1 in the United States. Virtually no one 
cared about F1 until that series came out. And now, you know, people are talking about Pierre Gasly and Daniel Ricciardo, like, you know, they're, yeah, you know, Kevin Durant or Tom Brady. So it's a very interesting time. And I just feel fortunate to kind of be reaching my peak career years right now as it's happening. Yeah, to your point earlier, I think it just creates this great opportunity for storytelling throughout the season. And this idea of, you know, some some courses are going to be more favorable to mountain bike athletes, others are going to be more favorable to traditional gravel athletes, and just seeing how it all plays out and having the points across the season as something as a fan that's in the back of your mind. I just think it's going to be a lot of fun and great for the sport. Yeah, I think so too. I, I really hope so. And, and the thing that I really hope, I, I think what can truly set it apart and almost guarantee its success is if they're able to lean into those personal storylines, kind of like we were talking about earlier, the things that I think really makes a fan base fall in love with following a league or a sport, which is the individual stories. You know, like I, I hope there's all kinds of awesome coverage of Aaron Huck making this return to racing following pregnancy or, you know, there's so many different incredible individual storylines that that can yeah. be told. And I hope that that's really seen as an asset and, and taken advantage of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I have a, you look at like Amber Nebin and her mm. experience, just like sort of getting a little bit crushed, still getting in the points at Sea Otter, but having a really rough day out there. That's the kind of narrative like you're looking for someone who's coming way outside of their comfort zone to race this entire series. And unsurprisingly, like a mountain bike style race was super challenging for her, but it's going to be fascinating to see like how she bounces back for unbound, which is this other radically different experience mm -hmm. in my mind at 200 miles. For sure. Yeah. I think we're going to learn a lot over this first year and I hope, I hope we get a couple years at it because I think there will be lots of adjusting on, along the way, lots of cool ideas. And uh, yeah, I think there's just massive potential and I hope everyone's able to, to hang in there for a few years to figure out what that potential actually is. Yeah, agreed. Unfortunately, you had to drop this race due to your injury at Mid-South, but I'm curious, like, as you looked at the arc and the style of racing that you were going to experience in the Grand Prix, did that alter how you're training? Do you sort of do one thing for Sea Otter and then morph dramatically into something else for a 200 mile unbound, which is the next race on the calendar for the Grand Prix series? Yeah. I mean, training is definitely different. Just physiologically, I kind of gravitate towards those long, slow burn events more easily anyway. So preparing for something like Sea Otter where, you know, the, I mean, the average speed, I think Keegan said his average speed was like 17.8 miles an hour. Schwamigan's average speed. I did it two years and we averaged over 19 miles an hour both times. Ironically, these mountain bike events and, and Leadville, you know, despite all of its climbing and high elevation, that average speed is, is almost 17 miles an hour. So these mountain bike events are, are very much gravel style mountain bike events. It would, <laughs> it would be pretty funny to, to, to see this field, you know, line up for something like the Grand Junction off-road where you're lucky to crack nine and a half mile per hour average speed and everyone's running 120 bikes and two, four tires. But yeah, in terms of training, those, those faster kind of leg speed, high end events are ones that I have to train a little bit. I have to like tune up some speed a little bit more for. So for example, I'll attend the Tuesday night worlds group ride here in Durango 
almost every week in the month leading up to that sort of event. I'll get in some good motor pacing sessions. Still, you know, log some good five-hour rides just because that's what helps me be at my fittest, but not worry about a six and a half, seven-hour ride. With Unbound, I will notch, you know, some good six-plus-hour rides, and a lot of it is also just about practicing, like practicing your fueling, practicing with the equipment you want to use, doing some heat acclimation, and then just doing massive amounts of sub-threshold work. So, you know, I'll do rides, you know, like a six-hour ride and do three tempo, three one-hour tempo blocks in there, just like an insane amount of KJs, um, just trying to get your body used to being efficient, really. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to and, and being efficient under duress. So being efficient when it's 90 degrees out and your stomach maybe isn't feeling amazing and you're pinging off rocks and, and you know, trying to navigate a big bunch. So there are some different things that I do. Overall, training is, is pretty simple. You know, on the XC World Cup, it, training gets a lot more complicated, I think. But for these longer distance events, training actually isn't terribly complicated, I don't think. Is there anyone in particular that you're super excited about? In the series? Yeah. <sighs> Probably Leadville. I've been consistently good at Leadville. I've never had a 100% clean run at it, but I've been third twice, fourth last year. That's one that I would love to win before I retire. You know, if there's one race I could pick before I get too old to be competitive, I think Leadville's probably it. It's tricky though, because we've got these two guys that are just sensational, you know, generational talents in, in Keegan and Howard. Both of them grew up at very high elevation. They're small guys and they just go uphill like nobody's business. And, you know, <laughs> they're hard to beat. They're definitely hard to yeah. beat. So, um, Every year, you know, I, I, I look towards Leadville. I would love to love for everything to come together for me there. But, you know, all of these races are really competitive. But if I had to pick one, that's probably the one I'm, I'm most looking forward to. Got it. And is there any room in your calendar for a pace and adventure this year? <laughs> yeah, good question. Boy, that's kind of the trade-off of the Grand Prix. You know, it's really consuming. That said, I know that I always perform better off of big training blocks. So I've, I've pulled back on race days pretty significantly. So I have some really big breaks in my schedule. I'm probably going to go do this four day GB Duro style stage race in Iceland. That is the route that we bike toured last year around the West Fjords. It's 450 mile days, give or, which would be a fun adventure. But in terms of like whoa, here's, here's a crazy idea no one's done yet type thing. I have, I have a pretty significant list of those. We'll see where they fit in. I'm going to do another trail town for sure. I really enjoyed that project in Bentonville last year and the storytelling aspect of that and the, the big gear giveaway we got to do and kind of the, the community that we, we developed online there that was really successful. So I'll do another one of those. There's also going to be another Matchstick Productions film coming up, which is really good for the sport, you know, really high profile, high production value feature length film that typically, you know, features a lot of backflips and 360s and in Virgin Utah and doesn't feature endurance riding as much, but they've been really cool about 
working more of that in. So I'm looking forward to filming for that again this year, their next one. Probably in terms of like a big crossing or, or, you know, massive FKT of some kind, I have a big scouting mission that I'll be doing in the fall, but it'll be by far and away the biggest, <laughs> the biggest one I've tried. Not in terms of, eh, well, kind of distance too, but mostly just like, it's extremely audacious and not the sort of thing where I can just go in blind. So going to go in yeah. and, and do a lot of scouting for that and probably knock that out summer of 23. Nice. Well, I mean, for the listener, Payson's always an exciting person to follow and your creativity. <laughs> it's just fun watching how your mind works and the things you want to tackle. And it's just a lot of fun to watch what you're doing. I know we got to get you out on a training ride, but one final question. I just wanted to talk about your change in sponsorship this year in terms of mm -hmm. the bike you're riding. You want to yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of directions we could go there, but that was one of the scarier, <laughs> scarier professional periods I've had thus far. I obviously had two, two really great options, and and went back and forth between the two for months. I was very fortunate to have the the support of of an agent that I've come to lean on very <laughs> significantly over the last couple of years not sure where I'd be without him but yeah I mean that was uh that was another sort of like red red pill blue pill moment where the logical thing would be to stay with the brand that you've been with for seven years and is the big juggernaut and the proven you know you can be a reliable cog in a big machine type sort of situation but I've always had this kind of entrepreneurial drive that's really hard to ignore sometimes and there was a whole lot of upside with joining allied and they're doing some really industry defining things that other brands don't have the ability or confidence or ambition to do you know they're 100 made in the u.s component is is really incredible and that affords all sorts of things from a quality standpoint, a product development standpoint, and just social issue standpoint, an environmental aspect standpoint, things that felt very good morally in a way. But ultimately, I just wanted to be on the bikes that I thought I could win on. And Allied's bikes are just unbelievable. I mean, the, the, the quality and the care, their process for product development and their willingness to kind of ignore industry trends in favor of just making the fastest, most badass bike possible was very, very intriguing and enticing. And I did go back and forth many times for a while. But once I finally made the decision, I just, it, it felt like a massive relief, a huge amount of excitement. And yeah, in hindsight, I'd make that decision 10 out of 10 times again. Right on. Presumably you've got both an Allied Echo and an Allied, what's the other Able. one with the, the Able in your yep. quiver? Are you using the Echo as your road bike or are you using one of their their pure road machines? So we were we've been waiting on parts for the Echo. I've had an Echo frame for a good bit. Parts just showed up last week, so I'll be getting that Echo built up probably over the weekend. I've test ridden one, but I haven't put huge miles on an Echo yet. It's a really I mean just a classic example of a brilliant idea from from the incredible mind that is Sam Pickman there, their head of product but i'll definitely be racing the echo at things like steamboat where you know aerodynamics and and weight and and more of a road style bike really would pay dividends the able is just awesome i was absolutely mind boggled by how light it was i mean it's 
over a pound lighter than than the gravel bike I was racing the previous year, which frankly I didn't really expect. So that's been great. And then uh, yeah, I'm also on an Alpha, which is their their road bike, just super yeah. zippy, snappy road bike, and has a really cool, almost a little bit old school aesthetic with the the level top tube that has this really cool classic look. Yeah, for sure. I'll refer in the show notes, um, the listener to my interview with Sam and I've had allied on a couple different times. So great product, super, I'm super jazzed when anybody's making anything in the USA. And as you said, it's just fun as an athlete, I'm sure to be able to go to the factory and see the layups and talk to the, to the craftsmen that are working on the product. Yeah. And just to have a lot of input, you know, just to be able to say, Hey, I'm interested in running my bike this way. Is that possible? And then go to the factory five days later and they've literally like machined the part already and run all the kinematics. And they're like, yep, let's pop it in. I'm like what? Let's do it. <laughs> that would have taken <laughs> two years at a big bike brand. That's insane. <laughs> so true. So true. All right, dude. Well, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate all the time. It's been great to finally get you on the mic and talk about your career. I'm going to be looking forward to your comeback for the, for Unbound and throughout the rest of the series. We'll be rooting for you. Awesome. Thanks, Craig. It was great to finally get on and chat with you. And yeah, keep up the good work. Quality podcasts are, are hard work and, and few and far between. So nice job. And yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks. I appreciate that. Cool, man. Big thanks to Payson for joining the podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And huge thanks to Hammerhead and the Karoo 2 computer for sponsoring this week's edition of the Gravel Ride podcast. Remember, head on over to hammerhead.io. Use the promo code the gravel ride for that free custom color kit and premium water bottle. If you're looking to provide a little feedback, I encourage you to join the ridership. It's our free global cycling community. Just visit www.theridership.com. You can always find me in that group and I welcome your episode suggestions. If you're able to financially support the show, please visit www.buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. Any contribution to the show is hugely appreciated. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.